0: The book of Isaiah, it's crucial to understand, and it's nearly impossible to understand. So how do we negotiate that? Well, I'm here to help. I'm Mark Holt, and this is a Gospel Doctrine live event. Well, we'd like to thank, uh, before, we, before we get any further, we'd like to thank a couple of people. Bri Cox for doing their, our audiovisual today, and Kendra Lowe for our music. And uh, so let's jump right in. So first of all, the, the topic of my, my lesson today is called the six antecedents of Isaiah. And the, uh, the word antecedent, this is we'll get into what it means a little bit later, but the main meaning that I'm going to be using today is an antecedent is a word to which a pronoun refers. So understanding what antecedents that, uh, that Isaiah, that... Isaiah is using to refer, when he, when he uses pronouns, helps us to understand the book of Isaiah. So, Isaiah is one of the prophets of the southern kingdom of Judah. And the, in the case of King Ahaz, he would show up unwelcome and give King Ahaz lots of advice about the gospel. But in the case of King Hezekiah, Hezekiah would often consult Isaiah or send messengers to say, what, is, what does God want at this time? And Isaiah would respond. So why is Isaiah important? Let's read a few scriptures. First scripture we'll read is 1 Nephi 19, 23. So if you're my age, you'll remember the days of scripture mastery. You had to memorize this verse. And uh, Nephi is talking about the the the, the passages from the brass plates that he read to his brethren, Laman and Lemuel. And he said, "I, I did read many things unto them which were written in the books of Moses, but... "...that I might more fully persuade them to believe in the Lord their Redeemer, I did read unto them that which was written by the prophet Isaiah. For, and we'll come back to this particular part, for I did liken the Scriptures unto us, that it might be for our profit and learning." But right now what we're talking about is the first part of that. The reason that Nephi used Isaiah, the writings of Isaiah, was because he wanted to convince his brethren to believe in the Lord their Redeemer. So, obviously, there's something about the book of Isaiah that performs that task, and it's up to us to figure out what it is. Nephi describes Isaiah a little bit later in 2 Nephi chapter 11. He says, Now I, Nephi, write more of the words of Isaiah, for my soul delighteth in his words, for I will liken his words unto my people. So, remember, before it was we, had, we should liken the Scriptures unto us. Now he says, I will liken his words unto my people and I will send them forth unto all my children for he verily saw my Redeemer even as I have seen him. So we have a prophetic witness from Nephi who lived at least 100 years after Isaiah. Somehow, Isaiah knew, or I'm sorry, Nephi lived 100 years after Isaiah. Somehow Nephi knew that Isaiah had seen the living Christ, and had, and had a visitation from Christ, probably because, as he says, he also met Christ. Christ probably told him that. So we know, we can know from this verse that Isaiah had a personal witness, not only of the prophetic things that he said about the nation of Israel, but also about Jesus Christ. Finally, Nephi says, um, after, and then, and then we have between this chapter and the, and the one that I'm going to read in a second, we have those wonderful Isaiah chapters that you're all big fans of. You get to when you're reading the Book of Mormon. You think, why can't I already be past this? I can't say that I read the whole Book of Mormon if I don't actually read these, but I don't get what's going on. So I'm just going to put that part of my mind to sleep. I'm going to read as quickly as I can. And hopefully in you know today or tomorrow, I'll be done with the... I can, if I read long enough, then I can finish it in a day or two and we forget about it as soon as we're done. So what my goal today is, is to help you have the tools to go, and this is what happened to me last time that I got to this point in the Book of Mormon, uh, to help you have the tools to say to yourself, I'm really looking forward to the next time I get to those Isaiah chapters, because I know that they're going to be extremely um, edifying for me. So let's Let's now turn to 2 Nephi, chapter 25. This is after he's already read or transcribed the the Isaiah chapters as we have them in the Book of Mormon. And in, in verse 7, Nephi says, Behold, I proceed with mine own prophecy according to my plainness in the which I know that no man can err. Nevertheless, in the days that the prophecies of Isaiah shall be fulfilled, men shall know of a surety at the times when they shall come to pass. Now that is today among other times, as we'll discuss. Wherefore, they are of worth unto the children of men. And he that supposeth that they are not, unto them will I speak particularly. That's everyone in this room and everyone listening to the podcast. All of us have supposed that the words of Isaiah are not of worth. We've all at one time or another thought, uh, this, it's probably not important that I understand what's going on here. So this is Nephi telling, telling us, I'm talking to you right now. If you think that Isaiah is not worth understanding, then it's you that I'm speaking to more particularly. And confine the words unto mine own people, for I know that they shall be of great worth unto them in the last days. For in that day shall they understand them. Wherefore, for their good have I written them. So this should tell you that what we're, what we're engaged in right now is a, a task that God has wanted us to be engaged in since 2,600 years ago. He set this task out for us that we should be engaged in understanding the words of Isaiah. Now, the final final witness of Isaiah comes from Jesus Christ himself. And it's found in 3 Nephi 23. And I, I I invite you to look at the context of this verse, but we won't go into it tonight. Jesus says chapter 23, verse 1, And now behold, I say unto you that ye ought to search these things. So he's been talking about the words of Isaiah. You ought to search these things. Yea, a commandment I give unto you, that ye search these things diligently. For great are the words of Isaiah. Those are, that is something that Christ said about no other prophet. So, it is a worthwhile endeavor. It, is, it will reward all of our study and all of our work to understand the words of Isaiah. We have the testimony indirectly of Christ through Nephi, the testimony of Nephi, and the testimony directly from Jesus Christ, in addition to the words of Isaiah to tell us how important this is. So let's say you believed every word I've said up until now. You're still lost. Isaiah is still a mystery to you, and it's not your fault. It's tough. It's not easy to get everything that Isaiah is saying. So let's uh, let's discuss some of the reasons why that might be. First of all, I've, I've made mention of this in, our, uh, in the podcast in past weeks, but the method of translation or the what you might call the philosophy of a translator really matters when you're reading the Bible. So one thing that I've done when I, um, when, I, when, I'm have, when I'm struggling with a particular, especially Old Testament passage, is I go to a website called biblehub.com, and there are other websites that do the same thing, but this one it's so great. It's such a wonderful resource, and it's free. And on the upper left, you choose what book of the Bible you want to read, and then there's an entire little blue navigation bar. And each one of the links in that bar is a different translation of the Bible. And why that's important is it, it lets you change your experience from between, between these, trans, these philosophies of translators. So a translator might have the philosophy, and as I mentioned a few weeks ago, the the philosophy might go anywhere along the spectrum from what we call intralinear, we'll discuss what that means, all the way to idiomatic. So an idiomatic translation starts with the words that we see in Hebrew. If you had the the old Hebrew manuscript, the the surviving manuscript that most of our Bibles are drawn from is what's called the Masoretic Text, and there's one version of the Bible, and these, these... this old civilization of Masoretes. They were so intent on preserving exactly the Bible as they copied it that they would sum up mathematically all the the, uh, words and all the letters in the Bible. And in the center word, there's actually one letter that is bold and big because that's the center letter of all the things. They they had a number of redundancy checks built in. In fact, uh, some of the some of the ways in which we verify that a computer file has been sent correctly over the internet are similar to the ways in which they used to manually figure out mathematically that they had performed an exact uh, transliteration or copy of their their copy of the Masoretic text. So we have that copy. We have the copy from what we all know today as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there was an early Greek translation called the Septuagint. And these are all translations that are available on biblehub.com. Now, they have also been rendered into English. And that's the philosophy that I'm talking about, is when the translators took these old copies of the Bible and they rendered them into English, what they're doing is they're taking something that is very stylized and it has a ton of baggage that goes with it. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means. But, for example, if I were to say to you, I'm flying high right now. Depending on what we had just done, you know, if we had just seen a wonderful movie and had a uh, an emotional experience, we're both come out crying. But it's an uplifting movie, and I say I'm flying high right now. You would know that I meant that I was very happy because I'd, I'd experienced a roller coaster of emotions and come out on top. Um, if if uh, I was in an airplane and you contacted me by radio and you said, you know, to Romeo Delta, what is your what is your altitude? and I said, I'm flying high right now, that would mean something totally different. So idiom can change the meaning of words even within a language that has not been translated. So we start with the words, but then we, if, if the translator understands the Hebrew underneath and understands the culture underneath enough, then they can also penetrate the idioms to the idea underneath that. And then they would take that, and if you're doing an idiomatic translation, then you render it in English idioms. And some of the translations, I'll just mention a couple if you want to look them up later. One of the translations that I like to read when I want an idiomatic translation is the Good News Translation. Another one is called The Message. And they are almost conversational in their tone. You almost don't feel like you're reading the Bible. You feel like you're reading a children's story because it's, it's in modern, totally modern English. And sometimes they say things like, uh, I, I don't have an example ready, but, Almost like you hear, holy smoke, that that was a big deal or something. And that's not the kind of language you expect in the Bible. But it's because they've tried to render the, the idioms in our own language and give us the experience that would be akin to what the ancient Hebrews would have experienced reading their idioms. And then they render those idioms into English words. So you can see that idiomatic has some strengths. One of them is it's really clear what that underlying idea is. But let's say that there's more than one idea that's being communicated by the text, as is often the case with the scriptures. You are limited, when you read an idiomatic translation, you're limited to whatever the idea that the translator chose. And if the translator had a limited understanding of what was going on in the original text, then you're going to get a limited understanding. So it's a lot clearer. It's a lot more fun to read. So if you, for example, are reading the book of Job, and you're having a hard time understanding why are all these people... Why do they keep disagreeing with Job? And I don't even understand what they're disagreeing about. They seem to be saying the same thing as Job is saying. Well, if you read then a more modern translation, you'd say, oh, they're telling him he's suffering because he's sinful. And he's telling them he's really sad and, he, and he's hurt that he's suffering and he doesn't know why God is punishing him. But he didn't sin and he's wishing that he could present his, his case before God. Then you would understand what's going on in the book of Job. That's the entire that's the entire plot of the book of Job, and if you, if you didn't have a clear enough translation, you might not get that. So that's the strength of your idiomatic translation. And an interlinear translation, I'll give you an example here, and maybe you can't read these, but I'll read it for you. So here along the top line, you see the Hebrew, and the Hebrew is read from right to left, and underneath is what each of these words means. So this is word by word, and then the English translation just of the word. So that's what an interlinear translation is. It's One word in Hebrew, and then as many words as it takes in English to translate that word. And it shall come to pass in latter the days established shall be the mountain of house of Yahweh on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and shall flow to it all nations. Now you recognize this verse probably, but you may not, but obviously the word order is a little changed. Now you can tell from this. That the King James version is a little bit closer to the to the uh, intralinear side, or interlinear side. So you can see that uh, when we read the King James version, what we're getting is something that even if the language were modern, it would still be sometimes, not always, but sometimes, more difficult to get what's going on. However, in that more difficult passage, would be preserved, hopefully, layers of meaning. In addition to the The philosophy of the translator. You also have some things that um, make it difficult to understand Isaiah, even if they're translated absolutely perfectly. And one of those is that Hebrew doesn't have all of the grammatical tenses that we have in English to communicate time. Now, we have present, past, and future. And then we have the perfect tenses, which are past of the past, past of the future. He will have been here by three hours by the time I arrive. We have all these different tenses, and in Hebrew they have the past and the future slash present. It's called the imperfect. It means something that's not done yet. So there's the perfect, everything that's finished, the imperfect, everything that's not finished. Those are the two tenses you get. Here's something that's more confusing. When a prophet speaks, sometimes they take a vision that they've seen, and if that vision is about a past event, so let's say Isaiah had a vision of, the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea. He would communicate this vision in the present tense. So then you feel like, oh, wait, is he talking about the future? Now, if he's talking about crossing the Red Sea, we know he's talking about the past because of the events. But let's say it's about an event that we're not sure what he's talking about yet. We might think he's prophesying about the future when he's talking about the past. To further complicate things, sometimes when he's talking about the future, but he's looking at an event, or he, I'm sorry, he's, uh, he's talking about his vision of the future. Well, it happened to him three days ago, and now he's writing it down. So he might say, I saw this, and this happened, etc." That's what happens in the first chapter of Isaiah. So Isaiah's prophetic calling is an example. He talks about his vision that he saw in the past. So the tense, the point of all this is the tense doesn't matter. You can think, oh, this already ha- is he talking about something that already happened? Or something that uh, it has yet to happen, and the point is you don't get to know. So therefore, you can't trust it. You don't get to trust the tense in the book of Isaiah as you would in a normal book that you pick up at the bookstore. You don't get to know whether it's the past or the future. If you keep that in mind, it makes it a lot easier. You think, well, I don't know if this has already happened or if it's yet to happen. Sometimes he's quoting. Quite often in prophetic books, you have the the two words Yahweh says, or as it's rendered in King James, thus saith the Lord. And then there will be a passage and you don't know how long that passage is. A lot of times it's separated from the text that follows by one of those little paragraph marks. But not all, not always does that mean the end of the quotation. It might mean a quotation that spans several paragraphs. So you can watch for those paragraph marks and, and kind of know when you're getting when or kind of think, are we getting to the end of a um, of a quotation section or not. And within those quotation marks, if we had them, the word I refers to God. Yahweh says, I will bless Israel. And then, end of quotation, even though we didn't know it happened, I refers to Isaiah. So here's where we start talking about antecedents. Sometimes Isaiah introduces a pronoun, and you don't know what that pronoun is referring to. So the pronoun might be um, he. He will, he, and I'll give you an example from chapter fifty-three of Isaiah. He shall grow up before him as a tender reed. You may have read this. It's one of the it's one of the chapters where Isaiah talks about Jesus Christ. He shall he shall grow up before him. So he who's he and who's him? We don't know. He doesn't say. Another thing that makes it difficult are the cultural and historical references. For example, the place names of places around Jerusalem. You might not be familiar with those. Um, He might be talking about a former king in Israel. He might be talking about a battle or one of the enemies that surrounds Israel. So in order to understand that, you would need to have access to a map. You would need to have a little bit of foundation in who the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel are and who the surrounding enemies are and who the kings have been in Judah. And and you don't have to have a doctorate in this stuff. A basic grounding uh, that you can get over just a little bit of study is enough so that when you read something in Isaiah or, and I I think one one of the fulfillments of this prophecy by Nephi, which says that in that day they shall understand them, is the way that we have access, you and I have access to unprecedented amounts of information. You and I can get on a computer anywhere within the civilized world at least, and we can have access to 98% of all human wisdom since the beginning of time. And that is something that no generation has ever enjoyed before this one. And I think that is part of what Nephi was talking about, and that day they shall understand them. So you read something you don't understand, it's not too hard. And on BibleHub.com, there's also, one of the links says COM. It depends on what size of screen you're looking at, how much the link tells you, COM or commentary. You can click on the commentary for any verse, and you have access to... Centuries of what Bible scholars have said about that particular verse, and almost every verse in the Bible has at least one comment about it, and some have over a dozen. So if, if you're thinking to yourself, gosh, what does this mean? You're, you're a few clicks away from knowing exactly what everybody else has thought that it means, and some of them might even have been right. Who knows? Um, did anyone see, by raise of hands, did anyone see the face-to-face event that happened recently with... We've got a few here. OK, well, there, was, there, was a couple of, there were a couple of church historians. And one of them was named Matt Grow, And he talked about this. Uh, he said, uh, and I looked this up. Oh, David Lowenthal. So he talked about, he, he was discussing how we judge the, the figures in early church history by our own standards. And he said, I, ha- I happen to really like what a British novelist said, which is the past is another country. And that was David Lowenthal who, who wrote a book called The Past is Another Country. This is important for us to remember. So imagine yourselves if you went to China and that's a very foreign culture and you were to go there and start. And let's say that uh, has anyone ever seen the, that app you can get for a smartphone where you hold it up in front of a sign and it and it takes something written in another language and renders it in English? Has anyone ever seen that? It's really, really amazing. You can you can be out there and say, oh, that's a restaurant. Oh, that's a public bathroom. And you read it in English, and sometimes the app makes an attempt to render it even in the same font as it was. I don't know how it works on Chinese, but let's say, for example, just for the sake of argument, let's say you're in China, and you had an app on your phone that was so good, not only could it render every written thing word for word in English, but it could also take all the speech that was leveled at you and give you an intralinear translation of what people were saying. Would that help you? Would you be totally at ease? Would you feel at home? Would you say, hey, everybody, let's all go to the movies or um, let's dance? And, and would you have any confidence that they were all going to do the same dances as you were? So no, you wouldn't. You would, and, and you wouldn't have any idea that if you went to a restaurant, you were going to be able to order something that you recognized. You have an expectation when you go to another country, even when language isn't a barrier, which it, which it often is, you have an expectation that things are going to be very different there. And yet, when we read the Bible, we think, okay, we've crossed the linguistic barrier, and so we should totally understand what's going on. But no, the past is another country. Not only is it another country, but it's 4,000, 3,000, 2,000 years ago. A lot of the, the Bible spans a huge section of time, and sometimes it's another country from itself, right? The, the, the books of Moses... Were written in a totally different culture than existed in Isaiah's time, for example. So these are important things to remember. Now, sometimes a word has multiple meanings. We, this, this happens in English all the time. But it also happens in Hebrew that there, is a, there are multiple meanings for a word. In he, there are multiple ways to render the same word. Sometimes they're aware of this the way we are when we have a word with multiple meanings, and sometimes they aren't. For example, when I was in the MTC learning Portuguese, they have one word for do and one word for make, or I'm sorry, they have one word for do and make, and we have two. So we have a word for do, um, do, what are you doing and what are you making? For them, it's the same word, and to them, it's the same idea. They don't realize that there are two ideas behind doing and making something, to them, and the same is true for most of the Latin languages, the, the, the word is the same, well, the reverse is also true. If you, ask some, if you ask somebody, where is this person? Where is this thing? Where is this building? In Portuguese, there are three words. Depending on whether it's a person, you would want to know where does this, if you wanted to say, where does that person live? You'd use one verb. If you wanted to say, where is this person at the moment? You'd use another one. Where is this permanent structure? Where, does th- where is it located? That's a third one. To us, we just say, where is it? Why are you making it so complicated? It's one idea. To them, three ideas. So they're aware that there are three separate ideas. We're not. So that's the main problem that faces any work of translation, is the words don't have one-to-one correspondence. Now, what that means is sometimes there will be multiple meanings buried within a sentence or a phrase. And you might think, you might think of it as you're going on a trip, and you have a certain amount of meaning you can take with you. In other words, you have a certain number of words you can take with you. You can put it in your bags. You can pick them up. But there are some things you just can't carry. You have to leave it behind. So when you're translating, uh, then, and and even though Joseph Smith, for example, translated the Book of Mormon by the gift and power of God, I'm almost sure that there had to be some some meanings that he just had to leave behind in the original Hebrew that he was translating from, the the reformed Egyptian script that he was reading. There was probably some, some things that he just couldn't render. And this isn't necessarily on purpose. It just means they're writing in their language and they weren't trying to, they may or may not have been trying to include more than one meaning. I'm just talking about the normal way we talk, it often includes several meanings and we're not aware of it. Now, in addition to that, there's also prophetic layering, which means that they are intended to have multiple meanings. And Isaiah is where we find this. This is what we're talking about today. So these things about Hebraisms. What we talked about, cultural and historical references. We talked about multiple meanings of words. These are all things that you have to do a little bit of digging to figure out, but it's not that hard. It's not impossible for you to figure out. One of the best ways to do it is to, if you run across a verse that you just can't understand in the King James translation, pull up a more idiomatic translation and read that. And then read the interlinear version so you know, oh, this is how many words there were. Oh, look what they've done in the idiomatic translation. They've taken this one word or this one phrase and they've rendered it this way. Oh, that's the way we'd say it in modern English. Oh, but the way they've done it in King James Version is to say it this way. And we have the additional problem in the King James Version. It's not the the English that we speak today. So that helps to to read maybe the revised King King James Translation, which is just as intralinear, but not as archaic English. So if you... Let's say you've done all that homework, and it takes a little bit longer to read Isaiah when you have to do all this stuff, right? It's not You have to go into reading Isaiah with the expectation, this is like, um, and I hate to use the example of fruitcake, because nobody likes fruitcake, but let's say you had a fruitcake that was absolutely delicious, the best thing you ever ate, or let's say it it is uh, dark chocolate or something. You can't eat a ton of it, right? When you're you're eating, you know, puffy, light whipped ice cream. You can, you can eat a big spoonful, you can have a whole bowl full and put a bunch of sauce on there and you can have a seconds. But if you're eating the world's most dense cheese, there we go, cheesecake, that's a good one. So the, the most luxurious chocolate cheese, cheesecake you've ever had, it's super rich, but it's about the best thing you've ever tasted. And all of a sudden you find you really like rich desserts, but you have to take one little forkful at a time and you have to eat it and you have to let it melt in your mouth and dissolve and you just can't eat that entire... The idea that you're going to eat that whole big wedge that they dropped off on your plate is ludicrous. you got to take half of it home, and you're going to have to eat it later. That's kind of how Isaiah is. Isaiah is not a big whipped bowl of ice cream. It is, it is a dense cheesecake that if you, uh, if, if you eat it right, you are going to enjoy every bit of it. So what I'm talking about tonight, and what the six antecedents of Isaiah means is this final idea, this final difficulty to understanding the book of Isaiah, which is prophetic layering, which means that he intended to put more than one meaning in a certain passage. So if you're, if you're reading the uh, passage from the book of Isaiah, you're willing to do the work, you've understood what's happening. What you have done is you have understood what I call the first antecedent. Now, we talked a little bit about what an antecedent is before, but um, I'm going to say a few words about the word antecedent. I looked up, the word antecedent in the dictionary today and it has six definitions which i loved because i have six antecedents so uh antecedent can mean something that goes before specifically in grammar it means a word to which a pronoun refers but it also means the people that came before me my ancestors i didn't memorize all six of the definitions but generally means something that came before it. well the point is even that word has a bunch of different meanings buried within it and I really, I, th- I really think that's appropriate for today's lesson. But the first antecedent is Isaiah and the, the Jews, the people around him, the nations of his time. So you read a story about Isaiah, it's obviously, he says, I went you know, to the king, the king called me in and I did this. It's obviously, that's the surface level of understanding of what's going on. Isaiah, like many of the prophets of Israel, was very active in politics. Today we have this, I don't know where we got this idea that the, the prophets of the church should keep their mouths shut when it comes to political statements. That is not an idea that's supported by Scripture. Isaiah was extremely active in politics. In fact, he advised two kings. He was also active in military matters. When the Assyrians were going to destroy Israel, the, King Hezekiah sent, and you, you might recall, Ahaz, super, right, or super wicked, Hezekiah, super righteous. Hezekiah sent to Isaiah and said, What's going to happen? What should we do? And Isaiah said, don't worry about it. Thus saith the Lord, I will fight your battles. Not one arrow will be shot at this city. So these, these men that were specifically charged with scaring everyone in Jerusalem, they arrive outside the walls and they say, we're here to destroy you. You've seen what we did to the northern kingdom of Israel. You've seen what we did to all the nations around us. Were their gods enough to protect them? You think your God is going to protect you? And they mock them and they blaspheme against them. And that night, 185,000 of them are destroyed. They wake up dead or, they, or they're, on, they're fleeing on the way. They, the Israelites wake up and not a, just like Isaiah said, not a single arrow has been fired. That's the kind of prophet he was. But he also was going out among the Jews of his time and calling, out, calling them out for the sins against the worship of Yahweh that they were engaged in. Materialism specifically and idolatry. So they were mistreating the poor. They were... Uh, much like Hosea and Amos before him, with the northern kingdom of Israel, they were they were materialistic and all of the sins that went along with idolatry, which we've discussed in other, in other podcasts. Um, he even gave his own children symbolic names, and uh, one of one of Isaiah's children, uh, in fact, it's Maher Shalal Hashbaz and. There's a, there's a famous actor in Hollywood now called Meher Shalal, so you can look up what that means. But, so that's the first, that's the first antecedent, the, the surface level, what's going on in Isaiah's life and in his time. The second level is the history of Israel. Now, hopefully you've got some basic understanding, an outline of what that history is from a Jewish perspective, what God is trying to do, the entire Bible, is create what he eventually ended up creating with Israel at the time of Abraham, which is a nation that will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Somebody who would show the world what it means to worship Yahweh in truth and in righteousness. So he creates Adam to do that, but Adam fell and his descendants are wicked. So then he sends the flood. And then he finds Abraham. And, oh, and then he sends you know, all, the, all the people on the earth and he has to destroy them. And then he sends, finally he discovers Abraham and he, and he gives Abraham a covenant. And he says, Abraham, through thy seed shall all the kingdoms of the earth be blessed. All the people of the earth. Then he leads the Israelites into Egypt. Then he brings them out of Egypt with Moses. And then they have the period of the judges in which God is in charge. But then the Israelites choose themselves a king. And the king's are sometimes opposed, sometimes assisted by the prophets. And then the prophets start bearing prophecy of the, the exile, that Israel is going to have this destruction and scattering. And then the Davidic covenant, where there's going to be this messianic king who's from the line of David, who's going to unite Israel once again and bring back the glory days, or so they thought, of Solomon. But these prophecies point to what we understand today, to be Jesus the Messiah. And then finally, it all, they, all the prophets look forward to a latter-day gathering of Israel and their final restoration in the New Jerusalem. So that's the second antecedent is the history of Israel. If you understand the, the nation of Israel, the progression that it goes through, you can see a lot of times what the modern nation of Israel, modern by Isaiah's standard, what the contemporary nation of Israel is going through is mirrored In the whole nation of Israel's history. That is why Nephi said, I will liken the people. I will liken my people to the people, uh, to the words of Isaiah. So he's saying the history of the Jews mirrors the words of Isaiah. Not just liken it to myself, but I'm going to liken my people to Isaiah. Now, the third is obvious. Quite often, Isaiah is talking about Christ. But Christ encompasses more than just his mortal ministry. So as Yahweh or Jehovah, as we know him in English, Christ was the creator, and he is the one who provided Israel with its mission, this mission to be an example to the nations. And as it says in the book of Genesis, he's a patient and forgiving God. He's slow to anger and he's quick to forgive. He's going to hold them accountable, but then he's always going to wrap his arms around them again. As Jesus of Nazareth, uh, Christ had a humble birth in life, he, brought, he announced the kingdom of God. He said, the first thing that Jesus said was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then obviously after his ministry, he suffered his atonement and resurrection. But as the, the ministry of Christ continues, and one day the prophecies tell us he will assume all government. And this is, this is what Jews understand of the Davidic king, the Davidic Messiah as they're looking for him. He assumes all government. In other words, he is an earthly ruler. But we also know that he receives all glory from God. So this is the third antecedent, which is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The fourth, eternal progression. Now, I put this when when, uh, when Nephi said, we liken the scriptures unto us. What that means to me is he's talking about us as spirits, everything that we go through from the time of our premortal existence through the war in heaven, birth into this fallen world. Then in this while in this world we make... Ordinances and covenants are going to bring us back to God. We die. We spend time in the spirit realm. Eventually we're resurrected and we go through judgment and final reward. So just like we learned about the nation of Israel, they have all these events that happen to them. If you have a basic understanding of what happens there. If you have a basic understanding here in the fourth antecedent, eternal progression, if you have a basic understanding of the the events of your own eternal progression as a spirit child of your heavenly father, you can often see these events mirrored in the prophecies of Isaiah. Fifth, the temple. Now we can consider the modern or the ancient temple when we're talking about the temple. The modern temple, uh, we're a little bit limited in what we can say, but a a lot of authorized things have been said about it and your understanding can be, even if you've never been to the temple, can be quite advanced. But some things that happen in the temple are washings, anointings, and then we have an endowment which enacts the story of the fall and the redemption of man and ceilings for time and all eternity. But just about everything that we might need to say about the temple can also, be, can also be communicated by talking about the ancient temple. And these are symbols. The temple was specifically intended by God to be an object lesson for exactly what Israel would go through as a nation, but also an object lesson about what we as his spirit children need to learn. That's the whole point of the temple existing is because it's one big object lesson so that we can go there and be reminded, oh yeah, God has a plan. And here's, here's where I am right now along this plan. Here's the progression and here's where I am. And if I make these choices, and here's where, where I'll end up. So if you look at a map of the ancient tabernacle, you'll see that it points east and outside is an altar and a brazen sea with water in it that was used for we don't know exactly baptisms probably then you proceed into the temple into a place called the holy place and there there's a there's a table with shoe bread on it that the priests would eat there's a candlestick that is that represents the light of god there's um an there's a an incense vessel that burns incense and then there's a veil and then you proceed further and you arrive in the small room called the holy of holies and inside the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant upon which two cherubim stretch their uh, wings across and join in the middle. And the imaginary place above that is called the Mercy Seat, which is traditionally the dwelling place of God. So you go from an outer world through a celestial existence, terrestrial existence, celestial place, and then you come back out. And in each, at each point, there are purifications that need to occur. And... The, the temple itself is often mirrored in the, the words of Isaiah. So I'm going to read these for those who are listening and un, unable to follow along visually. The first antecedent is Isaiah and the things that are happening, happening contemporaneously to him. The second antecedent is the history of the nation of Israel. Third, the Messiah, pre-mortal, mortal, and post-mortal ministry of Christ. Fourth, our eternal progression as children of our Father in heaven. Fifth, the temple And then sixth is something I've chosen to call our daily walk. So we already take up one of these, we as people already take up one of these antecedents. But we don't live, our minds are not built to comprehend the entirety of eternity on a day-to-day basis. The way we live is day-to-day, or perhaps maybe a better way to say it is week-to-week. If you were to take a week from your life today, and look back a year, that week would be very similar. You would go to church on Sunday, perhaps. Then you would grumble about going back to work on Monday. You would have to get up early for something one of the days of the week. Uh, One of the nights of the week, you'd go out and have a good time with your friends. Then one of the days you might work in your yard or you might go on a trip and then you do it all over again. This is your life. Your life is a series of weeks. And so that's what I call our daily walk, which means our routine. In my opinion, this is, this is the one that requires... Now, the other things can have specific, uh, specific interpretations that all, most people trying to find the interpretation of a particular passage in Isaiah, they would all come to the same conclusion. But when you get to the sixth one, our daily walk, this is entirely dependent on you. So the question you ask yourself is, what are the Israelites being told? Are they being told to repent? Are they being told to humble themselves? Are they being told that God loves them? Are they being told that they eventually will be gathered in? All of these things apply to you in your daily life today. And it's up to you what it means. You have to decide. So this is is why 1 Nephi 19.23 is such a powerful verse. This is what he's telling us to do. He says, we liken all the scriptures to ourselves so it could be for our profit and learning. That doesn't come from any of the other interpretations. Who cares what happened to Isaiah? If he walked out and uh, he saw a bunch of seraphim circling the throne of God and he had a coal put on his mouth to purify him, Like, none of that really helps us until we say, what is Isaiah saying to me? How does it apply to me? What is he saying to the nation of Israel? What is he saying to the children of Israel? that's a that's a message intended specifically for me not always not in every single verse but my point is going to be that uh, in every verse in isaiah there's at least one of these antecedents active and sometimes three or four it's rare that you would find all six but in the same chapter you'd usually find all six of them active at one time or another so we're going to spend just a few minutes going over First Nephi, sorry, Second Nephi, chapter twelve. This is the first of the dreaded Isaiah chapters. So, um, I'm going to turn this board around, so you can see here each of the each of the antecedents is given a little bit of board space, and we can I can I can just show you kind of how you would do this, right? You're going to read the first of these Isaiah chapters of the Book of Mormon. And what you want this time is you want to feel edified. You want to feel like, I really understand what Isaiah is saying to me, and I get why it was important for Nephites to read it. I get why it's important for us to see what's going on. So, uh, first of all, Nephi starts out, I, The word that Isaiah, son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So that's our, that's our first antecedent, right? He saw it about Judah and Jerusalem. Now, right away, it shall come to pass in the last days when the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. So you just ask yourself, you say, all right, we're in verse number two. In Isaiah's time, what's going on? Probably not much. The nation of Israel. Well, this is when they're gathered. He's talking about the last days. So, Are they in the New Jerusalem yet? We don't know. But that's prophesied for them. It was prophesied that they'd be gathered. Now, we're seeing the gathering of Israel in a lot of different ways. As you may have studied at some point or read, the gathering of Israel has a number of fulfillments as well. They will be baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They will be gathered in a literal way into the uh, nation of Israel. They will be gathered in the stakes of Zion. And eventually, some, some, at some point, they'll be led from the north country. So gathering already happening. New Jerusalem, not yet. But is the mountain of the Lord's house already happening? Um, yes. The temple has been rebuilt in the latter days, right? We have the modern temple instead of the ancient temple. But how does this compare to the actual ordinances of the temple? Is it a terrestrial thing? It certainly seems like it's a millennial Thing. it might it might have to do with a more terrestrial existence what what in the ancient tabernacle would correspond with the holy place how does it com- how does it fit into my eternal progression as a child of God am I going to be gathered at some point am I going to be sent into exile in in Babylon and then brought back so is my temple going to be destroyed do you remember that when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem they destroyed the temple And then Ezra and Nehemiah were the two prophets who were charged by God to lead the Israelites in rebuilding it. And so, um, is there some parallel in that for my soul? Do I come to earth and sin and then need to repent? So, when I repent, do I receive forgiveness for my sins? And then, am I lifted lifted up on high? Do people listen to what I say? Do... uh, Do nations come unto me, or do I go unto the nations? These are are questions you ask yourself as you read this. How does does this verse fit into each of these antecedents? Because it may or may not be true that Isaiah was intending for it to be understood on any or all of these levels. And finally, how does it fit into my daily walk? What do I have to do in my life or understand or believe because of this verse? What I believe, what I personally take from it is, I can believe that there is a prophet in the latter days. I can believe that the mountain of the Lord's house is the modern day temple. And therefore, it's important for me to be one of the nations that flows unto it. Right? I can take all of these lessons that I decide. We'll do one more verse, and that's about all the time we have. Okay, let's do verse number eight. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made, and the mean man, verse 9, the mean man boweth not down, and the great man humbleth himself not. Therefore, forgive him not. The mean man means the poor man. So whether you're rich or poor, you're bowing not down, the land is full of idols. In Isaiah's time, what's going on is idolatry. And they're bowing not down, so there's a ton of pride. The nation of Israel, they had a repeated problem with idolatry. So this is, he's not just saying um, people are doing this today. He's saying this this is constantly a problem. So this fits right into the history of the nation of Israel in the second antecedent. So the first antecedent in Isaiah's time, contemporaneously, there's idolatry. In the second antecedent, the history of the nation of Israel, again, repeated idolatry. It's a pattern. The third antecedent. Christ, how do we see idolatry and lack of pride? And then how was Christ treated? Christ was treated poorly by those around him, right? Why? Because they had so much pride. Who treated him the the worst? It was the chief priests and the Jews, the most religious of them. They had so much pride that they knew everything about this Davidic king. They, They thought it was impossible that it was Jesus Christ. How does it, what does it have to do with my eternal progression? Well, I chose to come to a fallen world, and part of that fallen world is a veil that allows me to forget heaven, and therefore I can lift myself up above my God in heaven because I've forgotten who He is. What does it have to do with the temple? If you've been to the, if you've, ha- if you've received your endowment, you'll understand that. People today are taught the philosophies of men mingled with Scripture. In other words, they believe they're worshiping God, but in fact, they're doing their own will. Finally, what does it have to do with my daily walk? Well, read a little farther along in this chapter, and you'll learn that those who will not humble themselves, who who put some other God before Jehovah, those people will be humbled forcibly. So, this, this entire chapter is a call for me to humble myself. It's a call for me to understand how many different ways God has tried to beat this lesson into my head and the head of every person on the earth. And if I will learn from all these, then I don't have to be, I don't have to receive all of the curses that are pronounced in this chapter. The lofty looks of man, now we're in verse 11. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Incidentally, this is part, if you read in verse 17, the loftiness of man shall be bowed out. This is part of a big chiasmus. It all starts talking about pride, then it talks about being humbled, and then it ends up the same way it began. But, so that, And that's found throughout Isaiah. This is an amazing chapter to start with, and it's, it's as fun as heck. That's, a, that's the most idiomatic way I can express it. You'll get done reading this chapter. You'll be applying these things that you've learned, and you'll think, I wish... I wish You'll read, you'll read the 12 chapters of Isaiah, there's maybe a few more, and you'll, and you'll think to yourself, I remember thinking this, the last time I did this, I thought, I wish there were more of these chapters that I could do this with, because uh, I, I really enjoyed the, the ways in which this has enriched my life and enriched the understanding of the scriptures. So, I thank you for being here with me for this discussion on the six antecedents of Isaiah. I welcome your questions. You're welcome to send them to uh, our podcast at the email address gt at gospeltoctrine.com. I know it's a lot of information to take in, but uh, I'm happy to answer them for as many weeks as it takes for people to kind of get this, and now we have several weeks of Isaiah lessons in which we're going to be be applying all of the techniques that we learned today. So. I'll finish bearing testimony that everything you've heard about the book of Isaiah is true. It's so important for us to understand. God has not left us. God didn't write the book of Mormon because the ancient prophets screwed up with the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of things that we need to know. And the book of Mormon is one of the biggest testimonies of that. Nephi was constantly talking about Isaiah. Jesus Christ himself said, "Greater are the words of Isaiah. He didn't say great are the words of 1st or 2nd Nephi or Alma. Even though they are great, he didn't say that. He took the special care to tell us that Isaiah was worth reading and understanding. And Nephi told us we can do it and that we have to do it. And I know that we can. And I know that it's worthwhile. And I know that it will give us endless blessings in our lives and, and perhaps in the eternities to come. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So, Mark, question. The verses in 2 Nephi regarding Isaiah, they're pretty much copied right out of the Bible, right? So, if you... um, That's a very good question. I believe it's in chapter 12 of 2 Nephi, the first little footnote that you get. In verse 2, the word when is not present in the chapter that this quotes from Isaiah chapter 2. Instead, there's the word that. So... There's a little footnote over there that says, uh, when we compare them, there are 433 verses that are quoted directly from the Bible, from the book of Isaiah. And something of around 200 of them are copied exactly, and a little over half are changed in some way. Most of them are small changes. Some of them are big changes. Um, The reason I brought up the Masoretic text is the Masoretes lived about, they started doing their work of preservation around 500 A.D., So that tells you the time of Isaiah was at least uh, 700 BC. So there was a period of 1,200 years between when he originally wrote this and when they would have been preserving it so uh, conscientiously. What happened to the text of Isaiah in between those times? Well, we compare the the 5th century text to the 3rd century BC text of the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation done before Christ. And we see there are some differences there. We compare the second century or first century BC text of the Dead Sea Scrolls to the fifth century text. And we see there are some small differences there. A lot, of those difference, a lot of the differences that might have crept in maybe occurred before the Septuagint was made, which is the oldest translation we had that survived. There are other sources for the, for the book of Isaiah. Some of them are found in the New Testament. And some of them are found in the Book of Mormon. So, it seems clear in some of the cases where there's a difference that it was Nephi making a commentary. He was changing the words of Isaiah so that it would apply to his people more specifically. But sometimes, it's not clear that Nephi has done that. There is at least one case in which Joseph Smith has inserted uh, when when it says, I don't know, I think it's earlier. It says the... Those who have come out of the waters of Judah, and then in parentheses says, or the waters of baptism. From the from the early manuscripts of the Book of Mormon, we know that the waters of baptism was not there, and that's not in the Bible. But it is in one of the later versions of Book of Mormon. So Joseph Smith added it as an inspired commentary to describe the waters of Judah, because the common understanding of the waters of Judah means your ancestry is Judah. But G- Joseph Smith is saying the waters of baptism. Now we can... We can interpret that however we want. Is it? Does it mean this verse applies more specifically to members of the church, and not just those who descend from Judah? Right. So there, there are differences, and by looking at those little differences, you can draw very important conclusions. Or you can just ignore them and try to understand. I mean, it depends on how much work you want to do. If you want to, if you want to try to read into those differences, I bet that it's going to be very profitable for you. But it's not necessary. So they're not- they're not exact copies in all cases. Something like almost half are exact copies and a little bit more than half are changed in some way. So why include those in the Book of Mormon when we had the Bible all along? So that is <laughs> that really gets down to the heart of it. Why would he spend so much time actually and I, I can imagine that what the way that Joseph or uh, Nephi would have had to engrave on plates would be he'd had a little tool for each letter. And he probably had to hunt and go bing, bing, bing. I, I can't imagine any other way he would have, you know, you're often seeing him in the, in the works of Freiburg painted like he's, he's doing a little etching tool. But I kind of think he used a little hammer and a tool for each letter. Anyway, no matter what happened, it's, it's really hard to copy down all of this, all of these scriptures why was it so important that he do all this work to copy something they already had in the brass plates? It's just another testimony of how important the words of Isaiah were and the fact that they applied to his people. So that's our, third, that's our second antecedent, which is the nation of Israel. We could have just as easily put the nation of the Nephites. It applies to his people and their history. And so therefore, it was important for them to have it in as many places as they could. Anyone else? Mark, do you have a favorite idea or concept that Isaiah teaches or speaks of? Let me think about that for a second. So Isaiah starts out, the book of Isaiah starts out with Isaiah giving a little um, overview of what's going to happen. The the children of Israel are going to be carried away into exile, but then they're eventually going to be gathered into the new Jerusalem. But um, over, over the rest of the book of Isaiah, he fills in details of that initial vision. And I, I don't think I'd be anything close to unique in saying that my favorite part of that is when he fills in the details of what's going to happen with what the Jews see as their Davidic king, but what we know as Jesus of Nazareth in chapter 53. And one of the reasons why it's so personal. Hmm. I'm a big fan of, the, of Handel's Messiah and when he says, when we sing, uh, and I sing in a choir every year, when we sing, all we like sheep have gone astray, the iniquity, <sighs> with his stripes we are healed, the, our iniquity is laid upon him. Yeah, those are my favorite parts, the parts that Handel has put to, such be- to music so beautifully, I would say, um, finally bringing, the, the children of Israel to the knowledge that the Messiah won't appear in the way they've been expecting, but in a way that um, will redeem them from, the worst, from what's going on inside rather than from what's going on outside, specifically Isaiah chapter 53. Thank you for that question. How do you use this breakdown once you've broken down each verse? How do you use that? What's the next step? The question is, how do you use the the six antecedents? Let's say that you totally understand uh, where they each fit into the verse you just read. Then what? So what? You understand it. Well, that really is the point. Once you get this understanding and you know that um, this verse applies to the ancient Israelites, it applies to uh, Jesus Christ, it applies to me today, and I can learn about it from the temple, um, that's really it. The the point that you, you take all of the first five and you use all of them to make your decision. What am I going to do with this in my life? How does it apply to me personally? Am I going to spend more time in the temple? Am I going to spend more time thinking about Christ? What did I learn about Christ? Do I know more about myself as a child of God? Do I know more? Why did the Israelites have to go through what they went through and how can I avoid that? So, you use all of these, these first five, you use all of them to make your decision. the the sixth antecedent is the one that's totally up to you. And that's why, that's, that's why Nephi made such an important point of saying, I, I applied, I wanted to convince my brethren to believe more fully in the Lord, their redeemer. And therefore I applied the scriptures to us. So use everything that you learn to apply it to you so that you can believe in the Lord your Redeemer. I think that's that's a wrap. Thank you everyone. This has been Gospel Toctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with Bumper Music in this episode by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints.